Go ahead, if you would, and turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. We're about to read God's word together. So let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, we come to you. Uh, We want to confess so much weakness. God, we want, we want to continue to worship, Lord, as we see your word and read it. And as you, you address us, God, through your word, we want to worship, Lord. And yet there's so much weakness in us, God, weakness in me to preach your word, God, weakness in all of us to hear it. So, God, we need your help in this time. Please help us, Lord. Draw up our eyes to see the beauty and glory of Christ, especially Christ resurrected. Lord Jesus, you are our living Savior. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us more and more a taste of that that worship, that glorious truth this morning. We love you, Lord. We need your help. We're asking for it now. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been in the Gospel of Matthew, I believe, I think since 2020. And we're getting towards the end of it. And one of the things I think that you have probably never heard us say, as we've come through Matthew, we're looking at the life of Jesus in Matthew. And one of the things I think you've probably never heard us say is, When Jesus was alive, we never started a sentence like that. When Jesus was alive, and I hope if you ever did hear that, there'd be several people that would say, He is alive. What do you mean when Jesus was alive? He is alive. So one of the reasons why you've never heard us say that is because of what we're about to read about the resurrection of Christ. So please lean in and hear about Christ who was crucified for your sins and yet lives. Verse 55, Matthew 27, verse 55. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the, for the body of Jesus. 
Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days, I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, he's risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting the guard. Now, after the Sabbath, chapter 28, verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And, and for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, Come, see the place where he lay? Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole away, stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. 
So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. This is the burial and the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus the Christ. This is a glorious miracle. It's the greatest miracle in God's Word. The greatest miracle in the Bible is that Christ Jesus who died has been raised. That the man Christ Jesus who suffers under the wrath of Almighty God in our place rises and walks again upon this earth in the flesh. The resurrection of Christ is a central claim, a central Christian claim to not believe it, is to not be a Christian, to reject it, is to not be saved. But if you do believe that Christ has risen and is alive now, it changes everything. It changes everything about your life. It changes everything about our church. It changes everything. You mean the one who died for us, who is our mediator, who is our king, he didn't just live one time and he's coming back. He's alive now. He's risen. This changes everything for us. The spread of Christianity, which, I mean the spread of Christianity out of Jerusalem into all Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, and it did, it, it exploded. So the spread of Christ- Christianity exploded upon this earth. And it's, it exploded, rooted in this central claim about the resurrection of Jesus and the eyewitnesses that bore witness to that resurrection. Now I want to read something to you. You don't have to flip there. But that, what I'm telling you right there, I want you to, I want you to get a feel for that. That the spread, the explosive spread of Christianity is rooted in this claim. Christ is risen from the dead. We saw him. Christ is risen from the dead. We are his witnesses. I want you to get a feel for that. Listen to this. This is Acts chapter 1 verse 22. When they chose A new apostle to replace Judas, it says this in verse 22. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So appoint a twelfth apostle to be a witness to his resurrection. Acts chapter 2, verse 32. This Jesus God raised up. Of that, we are all witnesses. That's that first sermon, going out and saving 3,000 souls. Jesus raised from the dead. We're his witnesses, he says. Next chapter, Acts 3, verse 15. You killed the altar of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this, we are witnesses. You killed him, but God raised him up and we're witnesses. Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. You could keep going. Let me give you one of my favorites, though. Acts chapter 10, verse 39. Listen to this. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses. Who, listen to this, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. That's the message. You killed him. He died for your sins, but God raised him up. We're his witnesses. Listen, we had breakfast with him. 
After you crucified him, we ate and drank with him. We're his witnesses. Because of the centrality of the resurrection of Jesus, this claim of resurrection is treated evidentially all throughout the Bible as if they're giving you evidence, mainly eyewitness evidence, that this man was raised from the dead. You hear that in the book of Acts? You see it in the letters? 1 Corinthians 15, one of the most um, clearest of uh, scriptures in the, in the whole Bible that tells us what the gospel is. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says, Christ Jesus died for our sins, according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised. There it is, resurrection. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then it gives you the evidence. He was seen by Cephas. Then he was seen by the twelve. And then he keeps going. He eventually says, he, listen, listen, he, he was raised from the dead. He was seen by over 500 brethren at one time. And then Paul writes, and most of them are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. He's saying, listen, Corinthians, take a little trip across the Mediterranean. Go to that place where over 500 witnesses saw him risen from the dead. And you begin to ask questions. Eyewitnesses that this man has risen from the dead. And the Gospels, the Gospels tend to treat it in the same way. Christ Jesus crucified for sinners. Christ Jesus raised from the dead. They saw him. They saw him. They saw him. They saw him. And that's what we just read in the Gospel of Matthew. We read eyewitness accounts to the resurrection of Jesus. And so let's focus in on each one of the people that are highlighted here, or each one of the groups that are highlighted here in the passage that we just read. Eyewitness accounts to the resurrection of Christ. Let's start with the women. So verse 55 begins with the women. So let's start with the women. These women were eyewitnesses to the death of Jesus. It's right there in verse 55 and 56. It says they're looking on from a distance. You see it? They're looking on from a distance. What are they looking at? They're looking at Christ crucified, breathing his last breath. They're eyewitnesses to his death. Verse 61 tells us these women were eyewitnesses to his burial. Look at it, verse 61. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. So when they went and took the body down and they put the body into a tomb, they were there. They saw it. Witnesses to his burial. Chapter 28, verse 1 tells us these women were eyewitnesses to an empty tomb. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. They went to see the tomb. Now I want you to understand something that, that, that you need to see as a focus here. Two major pieces of evidence that Christ has risen from the dead. The empty tomb and the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. So the empty tomb and the living Christ. We saw an empty tomb. Nobody was in the tomb. Nobody there. And yet all these people saying that they actually saw him after he was crucified, post-resurrection appearances of Christ. And that's a focus. And so what we just read a moment ago, it's not necessarily a detailing of that moment when Jesus actually rose from the dead. But it's a detailing of the after aftermath, things that we can look at today and say, and we can look at the, the empty tomb and consider that, and we can look at the, the witnesses to the resurrection of Christ, those that saw him, and we can say, I believe in this one that, that was raised from the dead. 
That's, when we get to the angel in just a moment, that's going to be the focus of the angel. That's what he said, right? He said, come, see the place where he lay. And what are they going to see? An empty tomb. And he says, go to Galilee, there you'll see him. Post-resurrection appearance of Christ. Now, verse 8 through 10, we see them being, I want to read this. Here's their eyewitness account to the post-resurrection appearance of Christ. Look at verse 8, chapter 28, verse 8. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples... So you imagine them there, these, these emotions, these emotions that don't seem to belong together, fear and great joy, and they're sprinting to go tell the disciples what the angel told them to tell them. He's risen. His body's not in the t- They're going that direction. Verse 9, And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not fear. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So here they are. They're headed to tell the disciples. Jesus makes himself known to them in his resurrected state. Makes himself known. Says, don't be afraid. Go tell them. Go to Galilee, and you're going to see me. And I want to highlight something here. That the moment they see Jesus, and he says greetings, what do they do? What do these women do? It says they lay hold of his feet. And the word here is they worshiped him. They began to worship him. You know, there was an apostle, if you read the book of Revelation, that began to worship an angel. He was so caught up in the moment and the glory, the majesty of this angel, the beauty of this angel, trembling in fear. And and the apostle begins to worship this angel. And you know what the angel does? The angel says, stop it. Don't do that. I'm a creature like you are. And the angel says, worship God. Now I want you to notice here that Jesus doesn't do that. They grab his feet and they begin to worship him. And Jesus doesn't say, stop doing that, only worship God. No, this is clear evidence here. Jesus is God. He's God incarnate. He's God in the flesh. God who's come to save. They're worshiping him, and he doesn't stop them. When I lived in Starkville, there was a a mosque really close to the place where, where I lived. And we went there one time to that mosque to share the gospel with some Muslims that were in that place. And the the imam, the leader of the mosque, the imam came out of his house, which was across the street, and he invited us into his home. And trying to put us on the spot, one of the first things the imam said, he said, show me one place in the Bible where it says they worshipped Jesus. Now what he was trying to get at is what? You don't worship Jesus. He's just a prophet. You don't worship him. You don't worship him. He's not God. Show me one place where they worship Jesus. And this is one of the places that we went to. Now, I thought, I thought to myself, how many Christians had gotten backed in the corner by that man? Because he looked at him and said, show me one place where it says they worship Jesus. And they didn't know that it said that. And they said, oh, no, maybe it doesn't say that. Well, I'm here to tell you, it says that. 
And right here, this place and several other places, they are bowed down worshiping Jesus because He is God. He's the resurrected Savior. Now, who are these women? It gives us specific names. If you look at verse 56, we get three women are named here. Number one, we get Mary Magdalene. Jesus had saved her. And Jesus had healed her. Listen to this in Luke 8, verse 2. Some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. Here's this woman. Seven demons had gone out. She had been healed of her infirmity. She'd been saved by Jesus. This Mary Magdalene loved her Savior. Listen to me. She had nothing to gain by bearing witness to this man is risen from the dead. We saw the empty tomb, and I saw him in the flesh. I saw him. I grabbed his feet. I worshiped him. She had nothing to gain. She had nothing to gain in lying about something like that. Then the two other ladies, you got the other Mary, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and then it says, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, which the other Gospels tell us her name is Salome. These are real moms. Don't you think about this? Real moms with children. Moms of children that would go on for the, for the testimony of Christ. They would go on to be martyred. They would be killed. One would be exiled to the Isle of Patmos. Real suffering came from, from testifying to this Christ. These women had everything to lose and nothing to gain to say, I saw him risen from the dead, and yet they testified anyways. These are the three women. They weren't the only women there. Verse 56 says, among whom. So there's several women there. These women loved Jesus. It says they were ministering to him in verse 55. They were looking on from a distance. The disciples have fled. The disciples aren't there. They've run away, and yet they're looking on from a distance, getting as close as they can. John 19 says that eventually a few of those women made it up right to, to right beside the cross to even hear a word from the Savior while he hung there. Man, they loved him. They loved Jesus, their Savior. And may we imitate their love for Christ. And may we be exhorted by their testimony, their eyewitness testimony to trust Jesus. He's alive. They wouldn't lie about this. They got everything to lose, nothing to gain from this testimony. But he's alive, they said. Now the next group here, not just, not just the women, but also another person is... It's the rich man. Look at verse 57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. So here's another eyewitness testimony to Christ and his resurrection. Joseph is being presented to us, a rich man. He's presented as a disciple. Where did this guy come from? Well, we know from other places in the gospel that he was a respected member of the Sanhedrin, the group that condemned Jesus to death. He's a respected member of that group. Now, John 19, verse 38, tells us that he was a disciple, yet secretly, for fear. 
of the Jews. He's a secret disciple. He's struggling with fear and cowardice, yet no more. It's not a secret anymore. He's about to go public. He's going to go ask for the body of Christ, identify himself with Jesus publicly. This took boldness. Listen to Mark 15, verse 43. Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage. This took courage. He took took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. He was walking in cowardice, but this took courage. He needed boldness. He's a secret disciple no more. He's emboldened by the death of Christ. Christ who died for me, who laid down his life for me. And he's emboldened by it. He comes out publicly as a disciple of Christ. Now, the account in John 19 tells us there was another man, likely a wealthy man right beside him, named Nicodemus. And just like in John 3, it tells us that Nicodemus came in the middle of the night. So John 19, later on, highlights that fact, that Nicodemus, you know, the one that came in the middle of the night, also wanting to be secret. Don't let people know because, man, it's going to cost me so much. If I identify with this man, it's going to cost me so much. He came in the middle of the night, and yet there's Nicodemus right beside Joseph, taking down the body, identifying with him as a disciple of Christ. This took courage. I want to encourage us to, to imitate the courage of these men. To truly follow Christ, to truly be his disciples, is going to cost you something. It will cost you something. It may cost you a lot. But be full of courage like these men. What if I lose the respect of everybody around me? Follow Christ. What if I lose my spot on the council? Doesn't matter. Follow Christ. What if they try to kill him? What if they try to kill me? It doesn't matter. Follow Christ. What about all the others? All his disciples left him. They left him. Who cares what they're doing? Who cares what everybody else is doing? Follow Jesus. But I've been a coward in the past. That's a tough one. But Lord, in the past, I've been a coward. I've been a coward. But that's okay. That's okay. Repent and follow Jesus now. What are you? What in your life, your following of Christ right now, what in your life right now puts boldness on display? Courage on display for Christ. Imitate these men in their courage. Now, as I said, Joseph, this courageous man now, was an eyewitness to the death and the burial of Jesus. Look at verse 58. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. Joseph, can you imagine this? Joseph took the body wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which had been cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. This is an account of Jesus being buried in a very unique tomb. This is a rich man's tomb. It's cut into a rock, it says. Our pastor says it's a new tomb. Nobody else had been laid there. The other gospels tell us that too. No one else had been laid there. He's the only one in this new rich man's tomb. Now, why are we given these details? A rich man's tomb cut into the rock, and it's new, and nobody else has been there. 
Why are we giving these details? This cuts off any kind of silly idea like, well, you know, maybe they just thought the tomb was empty. Maybe they went to the wrong tomb. This just cuts off silly stuff like that. This is also a prophecy being fulfilled from Isaiah. Listen to Isaiah's prophecy. This is beautiful. Isaiah 53.9. He, speaking about that Messiah, he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. What a phrase. Stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. With a rich man in his death. This is fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Y'all, God didn't have to tell us this. He's under no obligation to grab, you know, centuries earlier to tell us all this prophetic stuff, one little detail like he's buried in a rich man's tomb. He's under no obligation to tell us this stuff, and yet he tells us centuries before and fulfills it in Christ. Why? Jesus said this, I'm telling you this now, before it takes place, That when it does take place, you may believe that I'm He. Y'all, He loves us. And He gives us this little detail about buried in a rich man's tomb before it happens. Why? That we might believe this is out of love for His people. He loves us. And just as this prophecy, this prophecy bids us to come and trust Jesus, in the same way Joseph's testimony... His eyewitness testimony bids us to come and trust Jesus. Trust the risen Savior, the living Savior. You imagine people in that time. Imagine them, people begin to hear, oh, wait a minute, the tomb is empty? Maybe they walk there and they go check it. Man, the tomb is empty. Nobody's in the tomb where they buried him. And they start hearing stuff like, we saw him. We saw him. We saw him. We saw him risen from the dead. So they're they're hearing of the empty tomb. They're hearing of the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus where he's making himself known to witnesses. They're hearing this stuff. And you imagine someone going to Joseph. Joseph, did he really die? Joseph, is that really, that empty tomb, is that really the place where you put him? And and, And Joseph says, believe me, I held his dead body. It was cold. It was pale. It was breathless. It was covered in dried blood, and I wrapped it in a shroud, and I stuffed it into that tomb. How many people's conversion to Christ goes back to that testimony that Christ Jesus is alive? That man wouldn't lie. Why would Joseph lie? He has everything to lose for this testimony. He had to have great courage to testify to such a thing. Christ Jesus is alive. Now, third group of eyewitnesses would be the enemies of Christ. And that might sound funny. Wait a minute. Would would the enemies of Jesus be eyewitnesses, a good eyewitness account to the resurrection of Christ? And the answer is yeah. They've got no ulterior motive. They're not just trying to prop him up. It's obvious they're enemies of Christ. They hate him. And they're mentioned here, the enemies of Christ, the the Sanhedrin, the council, the priests, these Pharisees, the ones that condemned him to death, they're mentioned here in chapter 27, verse 62. And it says that they go to Pilate and they say, Hey, Pilate, 
when he was alive, he said that he was going to die and then after three days rise. They called him an imposter. That'll make your blood boil a little bit. They call him an imposter. They say, look, we better take some soldiers and put it around the tomb and hold that body there. We better do that because if they go steal that body and they start claiming he rose from the dead, then the last fraud will be worse than the first. They call him a fraud. Wicked men calling him an imposter, calling him a fraud. But don't you know that even the enemies of Jesus are just tools in his hand to do his will. These men, these enemies of Christ, are going to unintentionally bear witness to the truth of the resurrection. They're going to unintentionally bear witness to the truth of the resurrection. I want you to think about this. What is their intent? Their wicked intent, in verse, uh, chapter 27, verse 62 to the end of the chapter, their wicked intent is to secure the tomb from grave robbers, but it's actually going to be evidence against them that there were no grave robbers. They're trying to secure it so there's no grave robbers, but what's going to come out of that is, man, no way somebody stole that body. Look at the soldiers all around it. They're tools in Christ's hand. Now, this is actually a great strategy. If, if, if your intention is to stop Jesus, if your intention is to uh, put down Christianity, uh, you know, obliterate Christianity before it even begins, if that's your intention, this is actually a great strategy that they have. Just, just hold the body there for three days. Just put soldiers around, hold the body there, and if these people start saying, he's risen from the dead, he's risen from the dead, which is the thing that exploded Christianity onto the scene, if they start saying that, we'll just pull that stone back, pull that body out and show the masses. He's not risen from the dead. Here's the body. This is actually a great plan if that's your intention. And so this passage tells us that the Sanhedrin, highest you know, highest uh, Jewish court, the highest court in the land for the Jews, the Sanhedrin, is, is guarding that tomb. And they go talk to Pilate, and so they get the Roman government involved. The Roman government is guarding that tomb. Soldiers, it says here, armed soldiers are guarding that tomb. Verse 66 says, they sealed the stone. That's a threat. That's something you would walk up and see it, and to mess with this stone, to mess with this grave, to mess with this tomb is to mess with Rome. It's a serious threat. They're guarding the tomb. Satan and all his demons are moving the flesh of men to guard this tomb. Don't let them out of there. And the answer and the, the, the conclusion of everybody would be, no way anybody's going to rob that grave. There's no way anybody is going to be able to steal the body out of this grave. And therefore, Jesus, the sovereign one who holds his enemies like a puppet, uses his enemies as tools, the sovereign one, all of a sudden, if that grave suddenly becomes empty, we know what? Ain't no grave robbers. Something glorious has happened. And so when Jesus does rise from the dead... One thing that we notice is the soldiers, 
Uh, they, they, you know, they, they were scared to death by the angels. They run back to the Sanhedrin that hired them. And the soldiers go back there and they're trembling and stuttering. They saw the angel and they, were, and they were scared to death and they heard that this man had risen from the dead and they begin to report back to these people and these people panic. You see it in chapter 28, verse 11 through 15. Look at it. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priest all that had taken place. Can you imagine that? We were trying to guard the tomb and then the angels showed up and we were trembling, we were scared. We heard them say that Jesus is risen. We got out of there as quick as we could and here we are. They reported back. Verse 12. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole them away while we were sleeping. That's the plan. And it says at the very end, and this story has been spread among the Jews until this day. Man, what a hatred for truth here. What a hatred for truth. They already hated Christ who is the way, the truth, and the life. They hated him. And now he's in the tomb. These soldiers are saying, they're, giving, they're bearing witness to it. We, we, we saw this angel. He said he's risen from the dead. Nobody's in the tomb anymore. They're saying that to them. And their response is not to repent. Their response is to cover it up. They hate the truth. And hatred for the truth, if you don't repent of it, gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And that's where these people are. And so they make this ridiculous plan. The plan, I just read it, verse 13. What's their, what's their panicked plan? It says, his disciples came by night and stole, away, stole him away while we were asleep. Tell them that. Yeah, the disciples. You know, the disciples that were so scared and so afraid, they weren't even there to bury him. They broke through soldiers' ranks and took the body. Well, uh, we were asleep. All of you? At the same time, you didn't hear the stone rolled away? It's just a ridiculous plan. How many people, I wonder, as, as Christianity is just busting onto the seams and people are following Jesus and bowing down to Him as Lord left and right, as that's happening, how many people heard this fake story? And then they heard the testimony of the women. And the testimony of Joseph and the testimony of Nicodemus and the testimony of the disciples who, who, who are going to see Jesus and say, we saw him. And they bow down to Christ as Lord. That story is ridiculous. The tomb is empty. He must have risen. Now lastly, we've got the angel. Can't skip the angel. It's in chapter 28, verse 1 through 7 tells us about this angel. Now, we don't know this angel's name, but we have some descriptions of the angel. It says that his coming created a great earthquake. That's powerful. Look at verse 2. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone. This earth-shaking angel, power, is involved here. 
It says here his appearance was like lightning. Next verse. It was like lightning and his clothing is white as snow. Uh, verse 4 says that the soldiers were so afraid of this angel, they were in the fetal position trembling before him. Scared to death. Powerful angel shows up at the place where Jesus had been buried. Now, why would such a powerful one be sent? Why would such a powerful one be sent? Do you think that he was sent to raise Jesus from the dead? And, and the answer should be, no way, man. J John 2.19, Jesus said, "You go ahead, tear down this temple in three days. I'll raise it up. I'll raise it up. He didn't need an angel's help. He's not there to raise Jesus from the dead. Jesus said, break down this temple in three days. I'll raise it up. The Father raised him from the dead. The Spirit raised him from the dead. God raised him from the dead. He didn't need an angel. So why was he sent? He was sent to draw attention to the empty tomb and the living Christ. So just think about what's said here. Look at it in verse 3. Behold, there was a great earthquake, an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, and listen, and came, and what did he do? And rolled back the stone and sat on it. Look! Look at the empty tomb. Nobody's in there. How important is this that this powerful, mighty, earth-shaking angel was sent to say, look at the empty tomb. And look at what he says in verse 5 through 7. What does the angel say to the women? The angel said to the women, do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. I love that phrase. As he said. He's glorifying the faithfulness of Jesus. Ladies, women, he's talking to these women. women listen to me. Your Savior told you he was going to die for sinners. He was going to be crucified as a substitutionary sacrifice in your place. And he told you he was going to rise from the dead. And he did exactly what he said. You know, Jesus always does that. God always does that. That's why we can read his words and know he will always be faithful to every word he has spoken. You can bank your whole life on the words of Christ. And then he says this, the angel says, come to the ladies, come, see the place where he lay. Look at the empty tomb. Look at the empty tomb. Then, then he tells them this, then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I've told you. So there it is. What's, what's the angel there for? He's to draw attention. He's to, to highlight the empty tomb and you're going to see Christ, the living Christ. The post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. So here's some facts to consider. Undeniable fact. Jesus lived. Now he claimed to be Messiah he claimed to be king. He claimed to be Lord. He said he was going to die in your place. 
so that you could be free and not have to come under the wrath of God. All these things are claimed by him, but, but you know, and, and I hope you'll come to him and believe that. But undeniable fact, Jesus lived. Another undeniable fact, Jesus died by crucifixion. Now again, he claimed that it meant something. He's not just like anybody else that was crucified. He was crucified as the lamb that was slain, the lamb that was slaughtered in the place of sinners. He's your only hope. You take the wrath of God if he doesn't take it for you. But it's undeniable he lived. And whether you believe that claim or not, it's undeniable he was crucified. He died. Undeniable fact, his body, although guarded by Jewish and, and Roman authorities, was not in that tomb. His body was not and is not in the tomb. There are a lot of dead people that right now you could go and dig up their grave and find the bones. You can find no bones of Christ. Because he's not in that tomb. Undeniable fact, witnesses claimed to have not only seen the empty tomb, but to have seen Christ after he was crucified, after the tomb was emptied, they claimed to have seen him. It's an undeniable fact, risen from the dead. And every single person has to deal with these facts. Everybody has to reckon with the empty tomb, and the post-resurrection appearances of Christ. You, you either believe these witnesses and therefore bow down, follow, serve, love the Lord Jesus, worship Him. Or you believe some silly story like the, you know, like the disciples came in and stole the body through the soldiers and somehow can you know, convince the masses that He had risen from the dead. Or you can be like the Sanhedrin who knew the truth and yet rejected it still. But everybody's got to reckon with these facts. Here's a warning just in closing. I want to warn you that if Jesus is not risen from the dead, this means that you're still in your sins. You must face judgment one day without a mediator because Jesus isn't risen. If he's not risen, you must face judgment one day with no one there who loves you like Christ. No one to save you. No one as your mediator. And you will be cast into the lake of fire where the worm does not die and the fire is never quenched. But if Jesus did rise from the dead, and he did, I know him. He answers my prayers. He, he walks with me. I know His presence. He's risen from the dead. And if He is, this means that the sacrifice on the cross has been accepted. How do we know? How do we know? He claims that His death was, was a death for our death, a death for us. He was wounded for our transgressions. How do we know the sacrifice was accepted by God? How do we know he's risen from the dead? It's the amen of the Father. Jesus says on the cross, it's finished. And in the resurrection, the Father says, it's finished indeed. The sacrifice is accepted. If he's risen from the dead, it means we have a living mediator right now. 
A mediator between God and man. He's fully God. He's fully man. And He mediates on our behalf. And therefore, we can be saved to the uttermost because we have Jesus as our mediator and our great high priest. I want to close by reading to you my favorite resurrection verse. And you might be surprised to know it's from Acts 25, verse 19. Acts 25, verse 19. What's happening here is a governing authority named Festus is talking to another governing authority named King Agrippa. And he's trying to explain to King Agrippa what the charges are against that old criminal Paul. So he's explaining. It's a governing authority explaining to another governing authority. What are the charges that are laid against that old, that old criminal, the Apostle Paul. And he's expecting that it would be some kind of real serious charge, like he's a murderer. Treason, something. Look at what he says in Acts 25, verse 19. So it was none of those things. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him, with Paul, about their own religion... And about a certain Jesus, Festus says, who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. I love this resurrection verse. King Agrippa, uh, hey, what's this Paul guy on trial for? Man, I thought it would be murder. I thought it would be something really serious. But instead, it's, it's about this certain Jesus, you know, the guy that was crucified, Jesus is dead. He keeps saying he's alive and he's making everybody mad about it. That's my favorite resurrection verse. This is what Christians are like. He's alive. He's not dead. He's alive. What do, you, what do you mean when Jesus was alive? He's alive right now. It's what the resurrection means. It's all your hope. It's all your strength. It's all the courage that you have to live out the Christian life for his namesake. You can't do it if Jesus is not alive. But he is alive. Risen from the dead. And we worship him. We bow down at his feet like those, those women did, like Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. We, we grab his feet and we worship him as God and we live our lives for him. That's our response to the risen Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we worship you. You are our living Savior. And all our strength comes from you. All our hope is in you. We praise you, Lord, that you came to save sinners and you, and you died in our place. We give you praise for the gospel. Thank you so much, Lord. And we give you worship and praise, Lord, that you're our living Savior, that we can know even now that promises to come back and receive us to, to yourself, Lord. We give you worship for all of these things and we trust you, Lord. And I pray that the, the witnesses, God, of this passage we just read, of these women and of Joseph and even the enemies, God, and this angel, that these witnesses would, would bear witness to our souls and that our trust as a church would be in you more and more and more. God, you're our living Savior. Help us not to forget it. Lord, we know our sinful tendency to forget and to live as if you're a past hero or a good example. 
Lord, we know that sinful tendency, and I pray that you would protect us from it. Lord, help us to be a people that know you and know your presence. We love you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.